0: Welcome to episode 71 of the How Did It Happen podcast hosted by Mike Malatesta. In this episode, Mike welcomes Dave Strand, a private investor and previous owner and CEO of Wisconsin Oven Corporation, an East Troy, Wisconsin-based manufacturer of large heat treat and other specialty thermal ovens for industry. When Wisconsin Oven was sold to Thermal Product Solutions, Dave became its CEO responsible for four oven manufacturing companies located throughout the United States. He's also the author of an outstanding book called Building a Championship Culture. Dave developed his entrepreneurial mindset as a young kid, selling candy bars and becoming the commissioner of a neighborhood baseball league he created. He liked the feeling of having money in his pocket. He began his working career straight out of high school, starting on the shop floor of a company making large containers for the garbage industry. Dave understood that every overtime hour he worked was basically a 50% raise, so he would raise his hand and say yes to any opportunity to learn something new or work more hours. That willingness led to him learning how to paint, weld, and fabricate. Essentially, he became an engineer and inventor on the job. After moving to Wisconsin Oven, Dave progressed rapidly through the ranks, eventually becoming an owner, a board member, and ultimately the CEO. I'm Joe Denucci, Mike's podcast producer and blog collaborator, and I've got a quick favor to ask. If you like what Mike's doing with this podcast, please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. You can also rate it on iTunes in less than 30 seconds by visiting MikeMalatesta.com slash review. Your opinions will help us make the show as interesting and relevant as possible. Thank you. Mike and Dave cover a ton of great stuff in this episode, including how his algebra teacher kept him eligible for sports in high school when he had trouble staying interested, how a fist fight with his dad changed his path, the impact of Bruce Champion and other mentors who taught him to think about the future, surviving during the business downturn of the Great Recession, and how and why he approached culture after taking control of Wisconsin Oven. Dave is one of the real deal people that you realize right away has a special something you want to be around.
1: I'm just trying to survive. I never thought about that. I've always just lived for tomorrow, put food on the table. Uh, since I was a kid, I was just like, do whatever I got to do to survive. And he said, you got to think about your goals. You got to envision where you want to be. He, he said finally, you know what? How do you think about going to welding school and learning how to build these ovens? So I went to night school and became what my welding instructor said was uh, the best welder he had had. He had said, you need to sell yourself. I would, I'm telling you right now, i have not had a welder like you come across in a long time. And. And you need to go in there and tell me you need to make more money you need to do that tomorrow morning and i said no i'm not doing that he said you're making a big mistake but he, what he did was he really instilled that confidence in me that I, that I was that good no one ever really said wow you are without a doubt one of the best i've ever had and you have potential
0: this episode is brought to you by hello water hello water is fiber infused with zero sugar five grams of fiber with five inspiring flavors a fun and fresh delivery system to help curb appetite and promote gut health. Smile, laugh, live, love, and dance your way to a healthy lifestyle. Visit HelloWater.com to find a retailer near you. Hello Water. Inspire health. And now, here's Dave Strand. Hey, everybody. Welcome
2: back to the show. I'm very, very pleased today to have Dave Strand on the podcast. As you heard, Dave um, has been super successful uh, not just as an entrepreneur, but also as an executive working for uh, two different firms that bought his company originally. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting Dave for the first time a couple of weeks ago. We were on a, a mergers and acquisitions panel discussion at Lambeau Field, which was really cool. And uh, I I'd, I'd heard Dave on the radio before uh, on the Bob and Brian show, but I I never I never thought. I would meet him and then boom there he is <laughs> so uh so we got together afterwards and and kind of hit it off and he was um not only was he interested in doing the show but without being asked he um he rated the show and left a review on apple podcast dave uh i really appreciate that um Uh, Maybe I'll get into how long something like that takes, so maybe you could encourage other people listening to do the same, but uh, anyway, Dave, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Mike.
2: So, uh, I start every one of my shows the same way, and that's with a simple question. How did it happen for you?
1: Okay. Well, I'd probably have to go back to my childhood. Um, That's really where uh, the seeds got planted. Um, Came from a blue-collar family, Um, my I have to go back probably to my parents, uh, upbringing. Uh, my father came from a family of six, um, family moved around a lot. Uh, my dad had 14 different schools by the time he was in ninth grade. Um, his father, uh, was in carpentry, um, drank a lot, moved around a lot, uh, get settled in, pick up and go. And uh, my father had an accident when he was young, fell down, busted his front teeth out. So he grew up without any self-confidence, really. Um, people picked on him all the time. Parents didn't have uh, the wherewithal to replace his teeth, so he was called toothless. And uh, he showed me some pictures of him in school. Uh, sometimes he was the only white kid in class, um, depending on where they moved. They'd move up north, they'd come back, uh, so on and so forth. So um, he quit school when he was in ninth grade. He didn't finish in ninth grade. Um, My mother came uh, from um, a Norwegian family that settled here. My grandfather came from Norway. Um, Lots of alcohol involved in the family. There was a lot of drama as she grew up, but, uh, they met uh, at a very young age. I think she was 16 and he was 18. And by the time she was 18 and he was 20, uh, they got married and started having children right away. So, uh, along comes, uh, junior, uh, <laughs> I'm the first of three siblings and, um, we were born in milwaukee and shortly thereafter we moved out to the east troy area about uh i was in kindergarten i believe at the time my dad was scrambling around to find work and he landed a job in east troy a company called trent tube where he was a machine operator they made stainless steel tubing and he settled there for about 40 years and uh made a living for the family. My mom was a stay-at-home mom for part of our upbringing, and um, she took jobs here and there. She did whatever she could do to make a buck. So I saw, you know, hard work, (laughs) a lot of hard work. Yeah. While I was growing up, my my dad would take all the overtime he could get. Um, My mom would knit Uh, she would come up with crafts she'd have craft fairs she'd do anything she could do to make a buck um, take a part-time job here and there clean houses so you know always going along fine and well Um, and then in uh, seventh grade I came home one day from school my brother and I got off the bus and there was a roast in the oven and it smelled so good we walked in and my dad was crying and there was a dear john letter from my mom Hmm. so my brother and i stood there like what just happened everything seemed normal we didn't know what was going on and i had two years two-year-old sister at the time that uh she was like the apple of my eye. <laughs> it was, you know, I babysat for her. I basically brought her up while, you know, the parents were working hard and everything yeah. else. My mom left with my sister. So it was kind of a shock right there um, for us. And then we began to go down the, the path of having to survive. Um,
2: so, so she put dinner in the oven and then took your sister and left.
1: Yeah. And you know as a kid you didn't know that they had problems going on in the background Um, but uh, obviously there were some things going on that we weren't aware of and uh, she loved us all dearly she was a wonderful mother Uh, but uh, it wasn't working out between the two of them she made it made them uh, made us all a nice uh, roast and uh, wrote my dad a letter so that, that was kind of the beginning of wow that what do we do now? And we went to uh, the courts and went through you know, a little bit of a battle. At that time, we, my brother and I sat down with a judge and he said, do you want to live with your mom or your dad? And we said, we want to live with our dad. And we saw him, what he was going through. And uh, they said, well, there's no way that I'm going to take a two-year-old from her mother. Just so you know that. And that was kind of a, gut check, like, wow, this is doesn't seem right. They're separating us, you know. But it was our choice. Um, so that's, life went on. The, my sister went with my mom. Uh, me and my brother stayed with my dad. And um, then things got really interesting.
2: <laughs> so let me ask you a question before you go on there. So had, and obviously <clears throat> at the time, your your mom didn't have a discussion with your two year old sister about this, but had she ever? I, I guess two things. One, does your what does your sister think about that? Today. Yeah, and two. Did did mom ever reach out to to you and your brother and say, "Hey, if you want to"? I mean, you said what the judge said, but I I just I'm, yeah yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. My mom struggled um with this heavily. She tried several times to, you know, convince us to come and live with her. Um and, you know, when you're when you're reaching that age, you are starting to develop your own opinion, you get pretty stubborn. And um we felt as though dad was betrayed, not knowing all the, the details, right. but um we fought that. Uh we'd visited her, um but as we got older we resisted it. It was in Milwaukee, we started having friends, you got football, you got baseball, you got all your sports and you gotta drive all the way to Milwaukee and you're gonna miss week, you know, two days or whatever it is in the summer. So we uh you know, we didn't have a lot of time, but my dad had visitation rights for my sister on the weekends, we'd see her. So, um that's we went on.
2: Hmm. So your sister would come spend time with you, but you never went to spend. Occasionally, time.
1: very rarely would I go in there because uh, she married another man. Um, my dad stayed, stayed single, and uh, he that turned into be a horrible relationship. He was he abused alcohol, and she ended up in a divorce again. Hmm. And uh, yeah, it just continued to be you know some tough times for her and not stable. As you, far as I is concerned.
2: Did you think that, um, you know, so this happens, you're like, what just happened here? You're going through this divorce process, custody process. Did you, did you ever think, oh, this will get resolved, they'll come back together, or was it?
1: There, you know, after that had happened, there was a number of, maybe she'll come back. Um, she actually did come back for a brief time. Uh, and then there was big blow-ups and fights, and it got dirtier and meaner, and we knew it was it was a foregone conclusion it was going to end.
2: Okay. Okay, so sorry to so, interrupt.
1: But. No problem. So um, now as you move into high school, uh, here you have a father, a single father with a couple of teenage boys. Um, and he's working a lot of hours. Uh, the one thing I will say that was a blessing for me was from from the time I could hold a football uh, to today, <laughs> my father had a ball in my hand, in my brother's hand, and we would go out, throw the ball every single weekend, Uh, match up against each other he was all-time quarterback and we go back and forth my brother's only a year and a half younger than me so we had some good matches and we were very competitive and we watched sports and he he drove us uh to be competitive
2: even though he wasn't
1: he wasn't he was never an athlete Hmm. uh but he picked up on sports after he got out of school you know just watching it he was a big packer fan back in the lombardi days and um he's always been competitive to survive in life because of all the things he's gone through and really instilled that you know athleticism and 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 sports um minded mentality and that's that's kind of what i've attributed a lot of my drive uh to in life is 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 that because had he not instilled that in us uh and we had not seen the hard work that my mom and dad did as we were growing up, we wouldn't have been as competitive uh, in life. So So were you and your
2: brother one grade apart? Yep. Okay.
1: So we move on to high school. Um, Now, you know, my dad didn't, uh, he wasn't making a ton of money still. we're we're kind of, a lot of times, surviving on our own he's not around a lot um working overtime trying to have a social life trying to find himself in his next chapter he may be dating trying to you know find what what's going to happen in his life while we're trying to decide what we want to do with our life right right and you know we're running around with the crowd and you know you got to decide what crowd you want to hang out with Um, back when I was in high school, the drinking age was 18, you know? So when you get into high school, there's, there's alcohol starting to leak into the schools. You got to make decisions. Um, and we made the right decisions, uh, going through school. But one thing that, that, uh, really fell apart was our, our drive, uh, scholastically, uh, we wanted we wanted to have fun. We wanted to you know play sports. You know, once we got into high school, uh, it was all about girls and and friends and and sports. Um, so I was, for the most part, uh, barely passing uh, all through school. Uh,
2: Did it bother you?
1: No, I didn't care. I hated school. Okay. I was a terrible student. I was I was borderline uh, F.D. student all through high school. Uh, then, eligibility issues came for for football, and uh, I was I was a pretty good football player. And what position did you play? I played nose tackle and guard. Nose both tackles, back so back yeah. in the days. Quick nose tackle. I, yeah. yeah. Just,
2: he's not 350 pounds let's just put it that yeah. way yeah no I wasn't
1: I was I think I topped out at 190 in high school but uh
2: I love when the coach would put me at nose tackle I was uh, a linebacker and every so uh, often he would put me at nose tackle I just <laughs> loved it <right. laughs> I just loved it sometimes you get crushed but oftentimes you beat that you know it's they're slow <laughs> right so
1: <laughs> anyway true uh and I, my my biggest thing was uh I would always get uh, I was a horrible blocker. I just could not block. So they would always say, Strand, if you can't play offense, you're not going to play defense. But I was very good at defense, so th- that, that threat would last like one series. If <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Get in there. <laughs> i come up with some big plays, so <laughs> it was good. <laughs> uh, so at any rate. And your brother played quarterback, you said? No, he, or- he played uh, linebacker, but he was a small guy, and uh, he – he ended up uh, starting both. East Troy didn't have, you know, a lot of numbers, so you got on a team and you play both ways. And sometimes yeah. they're moving JV up and and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. how I. That's how our high school was yeah. too. We played every, both ways every play. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't a, like participation award. It was just yeah. like everyone's.
2: <laughs> I think I got off the kickoff team as a senior, but uh, <laughs> every play, every play, yeah.
1: <laughs> yep. So. So anyway, um, I had, and this is where, you know, I love um, being a mentor today whenever I can because I had some mentors in my life that really made a difference for me. Um, Became ineligible. The uh, the, uh, algebra teacher that I had, Miss Bressler, Mrs. Bressler, Um, I won't forget her to this day. I was failing algebra, I was failing uh, a history class, and had I not, in my junior year, had I not um, gotten those up to pass, at least to C, I wasn't ineligible my senior year. So, football coach talked to the algebra teacher and the other teacher, and um, she, uh, gave me an incomplete the last day of school and took me into her home all through summer. And my dad would drop me off in her driveway and I'd sit at her kitchen table and she would drill me <laughs> day after day after day, formula through formula for formula. And it was, it was painful, but, um, she eventually, uh, Gave me my C, and I became eligible uh, for football. And, and had I not um, had that, I would have quit school. You would have dropped out. I would have dropped out. I had no interest in being in school except for sports.
2: But wanting to play kept you— Yeah. Was a big enough incentive for you to sit through what you otherwise wouldn't have sat through. Exactly.
1: I just loved playing the game. And
2: uh, Did she turn you into a good student, too?
1: Uh, no, i I've still barely got, I shouldn't say that. I take that back. But I had all basket weaving classes my senior year. I actually ended up on the honor roll my senior year. You did? Yeah, after being on our student. Yeah, but I I had, uh, you know, some pretty cakewalk classes. You don't have
2: to, you, yeah. you can leave that part yeah. of the story <laughs> out. It's like, oh yeah. I, yeah, it became a great student. Yeah, Miss Bressler, and then all of a sudden, boom, <laughs> it <Right. I> flourished. <laughs>
1: So, um, but uh, during that time, um, you know, I'm a 17-year-old. My dad's doing his thing, starting to socialize. Uh, I had a girlfriend, and I had a curfew. I had to be home by 10 o'clock, 10, 11 o'clock, whatever it was at the time. Girlfriend lived right up the road, and the parents were always home. I never had anyone home. Uh so I'd go there watch movies with the parents and my girlfriend and he didn't get home till sometimes twelve, one o'clock, you know, regularly sometimes. So I'd just push the envelope and come home late. Never had anything happen. Yeah. And then one day the lights were off. Car was in the garage. It was never in the garage. So I just walked in like normal and boom, lights go. <laughs> Where were you? <laughs> You were out partying, weren't you? And I'm like, No, I was right up the road. Don't give me that, you know. So we got in a fist fight. And uh it was pretty ugly. It was like church, legit. Legit. Huh. He charged me, you know, I I uh dodged him a little bit here and there. Chairs are flying, some broken glass and I I uh this was uh yeah, I was seventeen. And I literally ran out the door, and I never turned back. Moved in with my cousin, who lived in McWanagall, who had just bought a house. He was in his early 20s. And he came to the door, tried to get me out. And he, again, my dad didn't like confrontation. He He didn't want to be embarrassed. And I just said, call the cops. I'm not coming out of here until I'm hauled out of here in cuffs. I'm not going back, Dad and uh i thought for sure he would you know send social services or someone to the mm-hmm. door and but after several uh you know standoffs uh he backed down and let me be and uh i finished my 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 whole senior year i lived with my cousin in mcguanigo uh got a job went out in 1983 at a company that built dumpsters uh, called Waste Tainer because my cousin worked there. Got me in as a floor sweeper, and uh, I was working night shift my senior year. Uh, get out of school sometimes around two thirty and work until midnight. So it.
2: after football season was over, yeah, you...
1: then it was all work.
2: Can I ask you a question about your dad? Did you did you had you ever gotten in a fight with him before?
1: We argued all through the high school years because he was so nervous. He was worried about, I wanted to get my license. I wanted to get a job. And he said, you can get a job because we'd ask for money all the time. Sure. I don't have the money. I want to get a jersey, Dad. Everyone else has a jersey. I don't have the money for a jersey. You get a job. I said, okay, I'll get a job. I need a ride. I need to get my license. You're not getting your license until you're 18. If, if you get in an accident, I'm going to get sued. I'm going to lose everything. Hmm. And that was his mentality. When you're 18, you can get your license. And that was a constant battle. Uh, I'd have to have friends pick me up to take me to work. I'd have to ride my bike, you know, five miles in bad weather.
2: Yeah, East Troy isn't exactly the center city. No,
1: and I was between East Troy and McGuanago, right in the middle, in the suburb of oh. both. Okay. Uh, so we fought a lot. In fact, my brother and I survived uh, high school by coming up with a candy bar uh, sales scheme. Um, back in the day, when they had these fundraisers, when when you'd open up your your Catherine bike, caramel bars and your crunch bars, you'd open them up and, and on the inside uh, they'd say for your fundraiser. Yeah, you fill it out. Yeah, and uh, we we had a, we'd had a baseball league. We formed our own little uh, four team baseball league in the summer with the neighboring uh, little neighborhoods. And uh, I was a commissioner in a league. We had four teams. We played all summer long. So I said, well, let's raise some money for some uniforms and awards and uh, we'll order some some uh, boxes of candy and sell it for profit. And back then, <laughs> in the 80s, you didn't have to go through a credit check. You didn't have to go through anything. I signed my father's name to it. And lo and behold, the UPS is dropping off cases and cases of candy bars and
2: at your cousin's house. Uh, or this is still at this your is, house. This before, is before I moved yeah, yeah, out. Yeah, okay. And Where'd uh, you hide those? So that you're
1: in my bedroom. And you, my bedroom smelled like a confession. <laughs> it was, it was ridiculous we lived off that milk for a long time. <laughs> Acne was bad. <laughs> uh, so at any rate, so um now we had all kinds of money to buy jerseys and stuff and uh but we were robbing from peter to pay paul often when it came time to pay my dad found out about it and he goes what in the world's going on and i said well dad here's the deal um you know we're we got this baseball thing we're raising money for but uh i did you know they're gonna need you to write the check you know every 30 days when we you know didn't tell my I forged his signature. I just said, you're going to have to write the check yeah. from an adult. Okay, well, when the bill comes, you know, make sure I got the money. So, uh, th- we had the kitty, and there was times he was stealing from the kitty <laughs> <laughs> to- for pure money or whatever. <laughs> so, it became crunch time at the end of the uh, um, co- uh, pay period, and uh, we would send my brother door-to-door, a cute little guy, uh, and you know, four pack of Heath's were a quarter a piece, a buck. He'd sell them for two bucks door to door and we'd catch up. (laughs) So, so we became entrepreneurs at a young age, something to survive. Nice. And, and uh, we you're, always had money. <laughs> you're
2: the uh, you're, you're the second person that I've had on the show who formed their own league and named themselves commissioner of the league <laughs> as a teenager. Right? Yeah, <laughs> this guy named Richie Burke. I don't know if you know Richie, but um, I, I'll introduce you to him because he's a fun guy. Um, but yeah, he had a, his was basketball, <laughs> and he would charge the parents to come see them play in the driveway. <laughs> That's it was brilliant. really slick. Yeah. It was great. Uh, I don't think he had a candy angle though. I don't remember a candy angle I like that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we got through school uh financially that way buying our jerseys and and being able to you know do what some of the kids do in school that um a little bit more fortunate.
2: When your dad would come to your cousin's house to try to talk to you into moving back home, did he like apologize? Did you? And and when you when I'm. am assuming this caught you out, even though you'd argued. You sort of caught you sort of by surprise. Oh, big time!
3: Yeah. yeah. So,
2: yeah. so I'm just wondering, like, what was? I don't know. I, I don't know if you know the answer. I'm like, what's going on? What's going through his head that he would?
1: Yeah. Do that. I, I think it was uh, again. Always being paranoid. He had a tough upbringing, and he didn't want um, anything bad to happen to anyone any of his kids, and he was so protective. Over, We were always very strict. You know, as you start to get older, certain kids get certain privileges to ride their bike further down the road to go and do things, and we were always behind the curve. It was no, 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 no very overprotective, very worried about anything happening because, of, you know, what they lived through, a lot of bad things.
2: Yeah, but you're like, I can see, like, you, so you're, you're starved, athlete you you know you're attracting i don't (laughs) say star that's my word (laughs) but you're attracting attention to school and then all this but then you have these rules that sort of take away from that a little bit yeah
1: it was beyond everyone Every, you know all my friends were like what do you mean you can't go to a movie are you kidding me what you know and i think you know we became kind of the you know because we fit in very good with the crowd but the crowd was like what do you mean you can't do anything yeah and it it was just happened year over year there in the beginning and it just got to be tough
2: okay all right so you get this job sweeping floors after school and that that night
1: and uh i had got my grandfather to help me go get my license behind my dad's back my dad actually agreed to it after i moved out (laughs) and uh i got my license um And I got a job uh, at Waste Tainer. And, uh, you know, this is, again, back in the 80s. You know, I was 17. And they said, you want to learn how to run a a press break? want to learn how to run a shear? And uh, I said, yeah, absolutely. I want to learn everything. And I want to learn how to uh, paint. Yeah, absolutely. So my senior year, I think I made... $17,000 $17,000 working, uh, minimum wage, 10 hours a, a night. I was sleeping in choir study hall and, uh, what was another class of foods I'd sleep through my senior year. And
2: what's a foods class
1: back then? It was home, home economics, oh, or food. Okay. All right. uh, uh, so, uh, I did really well. I bought myself a car. Um, and I uh, worked at that company after I graduated from high school in 84 till 1986. And this was the kind of place that uh, there was just a lot of um, guys doing drugs on the shop floor. Um, it was dangerous. You know, I was like, it was me and one other guy that actually went to East Troy High School with me. Uh, who was a really good football player as well. In fact, his brother uh, ended up playing for Michigan and was drafted by the Steelers. A big guy. Uh, him and I were really good friends, and we would just sit there, like, why are we wasting our time in this place with all these drug addicts? You mm. know? So I finally left and uh, in 86 and applied to Wisconsin Oven. And uh, they hired me uh, for five, fifteen hours. All right, we'll, we'll let you be a cleaner. And, um, that was, again, I was very persistent. I, uh, those, that poor guy that hired me, uh, I had to call him thir- every, 30, 40 times before he finally said, all right, come on in. I'd call Oh, him. no way. So oh, you yeah. were that, you were that aggressive yeah. about getting the. Yeah. And that's basically how I got into waste too i I'd call all the time and finally show up at the door and he openings yet. And finally, they brought me in for an interview, and um, then uh, the guy that brought me in said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring my boss down. He can interview you. Uh, his name is Bruce Champion, who became my next mentor in life. Um, got the job and worked in the sheet metal department um, and painted uh, after I got through the, the cleaning boy title. And painting was great because uh, we're, we're painting large industrial ovens that um, took up a lot, you know, a lot of the square footage of the plant. So the fumes, and we didn't have, you know, state of the art ventilation. So I'd paint after hours. So I'd work my day job, you know, cutting steel. And then uh, everyone would go home, the boss, and maybe one other would stick around. And uh, I'd paint, you know, sometimes till 10 o'clock at night. I'd get. You know, in my book, overtime was a 50% raise. Yeah. I was okay. like, okay, I'll take <laughs> I'll it. Take it all that I can get. <laughs> and I started raising kids, so my I wanted my wife to be a stay-at-home mom. So I just worked uh, my tail off.
2: And you were Her, painting with the T-shirt over your nose respirator yep, apparatus? Yep, yep. Yeah, when
1: <laughs> well, they gave us okay. a respirator, I sweat like crazy, so that would slip off. And then any time I had to climb underneath an oven, yep, T-shirt went over the nose and just kind of went down uh, the path of that uh there was nights I'd get home and my wife would say your breath smells like paint
2: oh man <laughs> so, so you so for people who don't know for for, for people who who think that their <clears throat> their only experience with an oven is like at home what what kind of ovens are we talking about and what do they actually do
1: so uh, Wisconsin Oven manufactures industrial heat treating uh, equipment, and these these ovens uh, vary from, you know, 300 degrees Fahrenheit up to 1,400 degrees Fahrenheit. They can range from a standard uh, box oven that's 5 foot by 5 foot by 5 foot to uh, an oven that might be 300 feet long by 100 foot wide for used for anything from uh conveyor ovens that uh, uh painting conveyor lines where they're painting of uh, for example sunbeam grills they have a lot of painted hoods painted uh, uh different parts of the grill that they hang from a conveyor it goes through a spray booth and then it goes through this conveyor that goes back and forth and 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 dries the paint onto the uh, its powder coating application okay and then we uh, would do ovens for Boeing for composite curing. All those composites, you know, the composite was the big drive. You know, get rid of the steel, go to light composite material, stronger than steel but lighter than aluminum. And uh, so, like carbon fiber, carbon or something? fiber, uh, that that type of yeah, material. Okay. Um, also for curing, uh, doing castings, you know, higher te- at higher temperatures, heat treating uh stress relieving um so a lot of our customers you know like for all your wheels uh aluminum wheel aluminum castings ford you know chrysler gm
2: doesn't sound like any food going through these ovens. no foods no, food.
1: no don't make pizza <laughs> yeah, ovens, non-food ovens. Say. Yeah. yeah okay we often get calls you make a big pizza oven yeah, yeah. <laughs> We have some ovens that make pizza because we throw some in the conveyor oven sometimes for lunch, but oh, <laughs> they weren't <nice>. FDA approved.
2: <laughs> okay. Well, I appreciate that because yeah. I think a lot of people don't have yeah. an appreciation for what.
1: So a lot of big, heavy welding, steel pounding, you know, this was metal bashing, as they say, yeah. uh, not your intricate little uh, range in your kitchen. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, I, uh, Go through the uh, two, three years of getting recognized as being the guy. You know, someone called me a brown noser. Oh, you have work all these hours. And I said, Hey, I'm here to make a living. You know, you're know, not here to make friends. If you're upset that I'm working, you know, a lot of overtime. Yeah, you know, they ask all the time, and you know, you know, a lot of people hunt here in, in November and December. You know, so or uh, mm-hmm. starting in October, and that was great. I, everyone would leave the shop, and you could work. Seven days Much a week, you wanted. Uh, twelve hours a day. It was it was phenomenal. So
2: I love when you said overtime is like a fifty percent raise. Oh that's, yeah, <laughs> that's so many people now that is like overtime. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I got a life to lead here. <laughs> yeah.
1: When I finally <laughs> bought my first truck, <laughs> yeah, my uh, personalized plates were overtime. Oh nice, that was great. <laughs> so uh, eventually, uh, I get approached by the vice president of operations because. Even our plant manager didn't like working overtime. He was a deer hunter, uh, and he would say, no one wants to work. We can't work this weekend. And then his boss would come down and say, hey, uh, I heard no one wants to work. I said, I'll work. I created a little bit of a problem. But eventually uh, uh, Bruce Champion, my mentor that I, I mentioned earlier, he said, you know, where do you want to go in life? Where do you see yourself in one year, three years, five years? I'm like, I'm just trying to survive. I never thought about that. I've always just lived for tomorrow, put food on the table. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since I was a kid, I was just like, do whatever I got to do to survive. And he said, no, you need to be more, you know, you got to think about your goals. You got to, you know, envision where you want to be. You have to start writing some goals down. Um, So he would have me stop up after work, you know, twice a week and just sit down and and talk to me about, you know, what's going on in your life. He he said finally, you know what, what how do you think about going to welding school and learning how to build these ovens? Because I didn't have a skill, you know, I just learned you know, on the fly how to read up tape measure, paint, and that was about it. So I went to night school at Gateway Technical College uh, in Walworth County, and... Uh, became what my welding instructor said was uh, the best welder he had had uh, that he could remember in his class. Uh, I learned how to make weld. I learned how to take weld. And I was always kind of the shy guy, um, you know, in school where, you know, he'd call on me in class. I'd turn, you know, three shades of red and just put my head down. And uh, I always... Went by the uh, philosophy of I'm gonna let my work do the talking. I'm not gonna be that guy spouting off about I need to make more money and so on and so forth. So this instructor Tom Rody, uh, another mentor as well, he had said you need to sell yourself. I would I'm telling you right now I've not had a welder like you come across in a long time, and you need to go in there and tell me you need to make more money. You need to do that tomorrow morning, and I said, "No, I'm not doing that." So it's not. He said, "You're making a big mistake." But he, what he did was he really instilled that confidence in me that I, that I was that good. No one ever really said, "Wow, you are without a doubt one of the best I've ever had, and, and you have potential."
2: Even as you were saying yes and yes and yes and yes to these opportunities, both yeah. at West uh, Waystainer and yeah. at Wisconsin, and still.
1: Yeah, you know, I knew I was a good painter, but yeah. no one ever said it. Yeah. Okay. No one ever said, Wow. Amazing. Amazing work.
2: And did you think that you deserved more money, you just did weren't gonna ask for it? Or, do, or did you think that's not important? What's important is that I just keep create, you know, being valuable or I I don't know. I what, all, what? Yeah.
1: I, I always wanted to make more money. I mean I I always thought I was not paid enough, but um to be a fairer um, I was making five fifty an hour. My first raise was a buck and a half. And I'm like, okay, that's a that's, I never got a buck and a half okay. raise yeah. in my life. That's
2: like thirty percent. Yeah, right. right?
1: Um, so I'm making seven, and and I took a cut and pay when I left waste tainer. I was making seven. I went to five fifty. So I was back up to seven in a year. And then, mm. I mean, they, at the time, it seemed fair to me. But once I got the welding uh, skill, they moved me into assembly. And we had rates. We were building a lot of standard equipment, the 5x5x5s five by five by and the 666s. Six, six, so once you've built, you know, half a dozen of them, you're building them by memory. You don't even have to look at the drawings anymore. And they had a rate on them. They knew how long it took. And before long, I was doing two-to-one with the guy next to me. I was, but I was the guy that, I was lathered the entire time. I'd run to the saw. I'd run to the uh, rack for a piece of sheet metal. Um, never did anything but 110%. And
2: No small units you built by yourself?
1: Yeah. Okay. So we'd have three, four guys in a line. They'd build, each build our own oven. Mm. And uh, we'd start on a Monday, and by Wednesday I'd have one done, and they'd be done Friday. Guys that have been there for a couple of years. So that... Then all of a sudden, I got a lot of attention.
2: Yeah, that, now the brown nose is starting to. Yeah, <laughs> I th- I now it's the owners now, coming down, going. Then, oh, yeah, yeah,
1: what's what's going on? Um, so then there's starting to be some, uh, you know, people are like, "Oh gosh, this guy's wrecking the rates. We're gonna have to start going faster." You know, we had some guys that were getting older. Mm-hmm. Um. So then uh I was approached you know as the company was growing at the time we were only probably a 6-7 million dollar year company and uh we were starting to grow internationally and they came up to me and said hey what do you think about doing you know some field service work for us some of these ovens need to be tore apart built out in the field and we're short of people and you you're doing a great job and we need somebody who knows what they're doing. And I had never gotten on an airplane in my life. And, you know, some of these places you got to fly to, some you can drive to. So my first field service uh, job, I said, yeah, no problem, I'll I'll go. Well, I got to fly to New York, fly into LaGuardia, drive here, drive there. Oh, my Lord. <laughs>
2: that's well, a – uh you no longer in Kansas type feeling. Yeah, especially a country boy from
1: East <laughs> yeah, Troy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was quite the experience. And then I still got a lot of experience on the road. Um, and I got to see places that I never dreamed I'd be able to see. I went to Italy for a couple weeks. Uh, I was in Spain. I was um, in Japan. Um and, you know, a young guy having all this opportunity, and, and I'd come home, and, you know, I'd get all these letters of praise of how hard of a worker I was to my uh, management, and they started throwing money at me. It was uh, it was really rewarding, and the work uh, spoke for itself. Hmm. And uh, Finally. Finally, yeah. yeah, and it was paying off. And over time, was still a fifty percent raise.
2: <laughs> so, when was it that you had the opportunity to to become an owner?
1: So, uh, went through uh, that phase of installing and and being a leader on the shop floor, and they approached me and asked me to be a working supervisor. Um so i took it we were growing we're adding plants and stuff so we had a little situation with one of our um, managers and they gave me the opportunity but they didn't want to lose my production and they said what do you think about being a working supervisor working plant manager i said absolutely i want to be hands-on i want to be walking around in dress pants so uh we did that and uh that worked out very well and then we Put another plant on, and then they made me manufacturing manager. And they said, "You got to put the welding gloves down. This is going to be more management. You seem to have, you seem to be a born leader. People are following you. When you went out on the road, you build crews. When you're on the shop floor working, you were building leaders, lead men. Uh, we need you to put the welding gloves down. We, we see leadership in you. So along that way, while I was a working supervisor. Um, I came up with a patent for the company, uh, for for Kodak, a a product we were making for Kodak. Uh, Me and one other guy, an engineer, worked endlessly uh, to come up with this patent. And uh, this is back before the digital age when you actually had to burn an image into an aluminum plate uh, cure it with heat, and then run it through the printing press on the drums, and it would give the, the, the aluminum a longer run time. Uh, that's when printing was done the hard way. Uh, so that that kind of catapulted us to the next level of sales and revenue. And
2: This was uh, something no one else could do.
1: No. Uh, they went to all of our competitors, and it was a unique design to, to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. So... Um, So the owner was, he was just really in love with my drive and the fact that I was, you know, demonstrating great leadership, uh, being innovative and coming up with ways uh, to really uh, help the company grow and go. And he identified that um, he wanted me to be a a minority shareholder. He set up the company so that he owned 80% of it and people that had helped him uh, grow the business uh, would own the other twenty percent so he had a board of directors uh, six of them owned you know five percent four percent three percent two percent to make up the other 20 he yeah. owned the 80 um, so by the time I was 29 I've been there 19 or ten years now um, he came up to me and said, would you like to buy into the company? And that'll come with a vice president of operations position and a seat on the board. And I said, okay, (laughs) what's that going to (laughs) cost? And uh, he said, $40,000. And, you know, I just built the home. And uh, I bought the home with a lot next to it, so I was able to, put a mortgage on second mortgage on the home and he had treated me pretty well with some bonuses uh, with what I did with the uh, the patent so I bought in and became a minority shareholder and that was uh, 1995 I believe
2: that's pretty I mean uh, it's one thing to get ownership but also to be a become a board member seem yeah That seems like a pretty I don't know, broad, re- generous recognition. It was. For...
1: It, it, and it was, uh, okay, I'm 29. Still had a little bit of a mullet. <laughs> and I'm surrounded like with people. Like today. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and I'm surrounded with people at the table that look like you and I today. <laughs> yeah, 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 Right. Old people. Old people, In other right. words, is that what you're saying? Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. So the first presentation, I'm not going to lie to you, I dripped sweat on the table. It was running off of me. Oh, my gosh. First question asked, you know. Um I was just a mushball. But you know, I I grew into it and uh I didn't know I didn't know the difference between a P and L and a <laughs> a production forecast yeah. at the time. Okay. But I learned and uh he was a great patient man, uh provided opportunity for a lot of people in the business. So
2: this is Bruce? This or? was uh Hank Kabicki, the owner. Okay.
1: Him and Bruce had a falling out, which opened up the VP of Operations ah, for okay. me. So, but Bruce had mentored me all the way to that point.
2: Hmm. So, did you feel like you'd made it?
1: Yeah, I did. Um, I thought, wow, you know, in ten years, I didn't have to ever go in and put my fist on and say you're not paying me uh, well enough. There was one one moment uh, before I became plant manager that I did uh, quit the company for a day, uh, cause I got into it with my, my, uh, my supervisor cause he had lied to me and I came back the next day to give notice and, uh, Bruce Champion stepped in and said, no, he said, uh, I found another position for your boss. you we want to make you the working supervisor. That's uh, when that okay. happened. So, but I never had to make any demands and they rewarded me and I felt like I made it. Yeah. Yes. I really did.
2: It sounds like you made it, but I don't think you've made it all the way yet. Not
1: quite. There was another chapter. All right. (laughs) So um, now the founder uh, has a group of minority owners. Uh, They are all aging. He was 53, which is scary, my age. And he said. you know, I have a life insurance policy on my stock. I have a nepotism policy. No children of mine will ever be in the business, and none, none of yours will ever be in the business. The owners of this company, when I pass, will be the people that help build the company. And the life insurance will buy out my stock. Mm. And basically, those that uh, are minority owners will will increase their ownership. Yeah, you just say, okay whatever you're 53 come on you're gonna live till you're 90 and uh lo and behold he gets diagnosed with cancer um in seven years they gave him seven years to live in seven years to the day he he passed away um so during that time um other shareholders are you know signing up to leave and all all of our stock was was all we had was a um promissory note unsecured that they could buy out your stock over five years period the company so if you left five they had five years to to pay it off okay so there's a, a valuation note.
2: mechanism yeah. and then you pay it off okay yeah.
1: so uh founder passes away in 2003 and um we have one other fellow that uh was VP Of sales, myself, VP of operations, and the rest of the shareholders were outside directors that had either helped Hank financially start the business or or helped him in the engineering phases in the beginning, and or retired from the company because they were were part of it. So uh, he's passing away. It's down to um, the other gentleman and myself to be the next president. And he was polling people. This guy was kind of a tyrant. He had had six years more experience than me, tenure in the company. The
2: sales VP. Yeah,
1: yeah. And he quite an ego. And it was like a slit down the middle. Well, Todd's got a lot more experience. Dave's he's got more. more, He's more of a people person. Uh, So then, on his deathbed he called me in and said, Dave, who should be the president of Wisconsin? I have pulled the board. I pulled everyone. He says, I'm, I'm torn. Uh, people are worried about Todd's leadership style. They think you got the leadership style. And I said, Hank, I said, and this was tough. He was literally a, a day away from hospice. And uh, I just wanted him to die peacefully. You know, he was just, to the to his last breath, sick over this decision, and I said, "Hank, uh, it's Todd. Todd's your guy." And he's like, "I don't understand. Well, how you can say that? Why?" And I said, "Because." I said, "He's got more tenure, and I can work for Todd." I said, "As long as he treats me with respect, I'll I'll be his his wingman." Peacefully, go with it. Uh, so he did, uh, and. About within two years, they lynched them. <laughs> the company just went went to the board, and he, there was all kinds of problems. Everything from you know sexual harassment to tr- not treating people properly to just— And this was
2: all bubbling up through the through, ranks. Though. Through the ranks, yeah.
1: Um, I had gotten in an accident, broke my leg uh, one uh, winter— and I came home, and all of the management team came to my house. I was like, "Wow, this is incredible!" I was off for two two weeks minimum. I had my foot in a cast, but I could work office job, you know. But they didn't want me for a while to go to work. <coughs> and uh, the, I had ten people in my living room, and I was like, "Wow, guys, thanks for coming and seeing me. Oh yeah, how are you doing?" <laughs> so you think they're all going yeah, like, sign yeah, your cast or right. something? Right? <laughs> Well, Dave, we want—we got a problem. We five um, of us uh, want to come to you with some things that have been going on. And since you've been gone, you've been out. It's gotten worse. And uh, some of the guys said, "Hey, if if Todd's going to continue on as president, I'm out. I'm leaving. I'm giving my notice now. I, I've already talked to the competitors. I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Am I taking too much in here? What's going on? You know, uh, and." At the end of the day, I said, "You guys are gonna to have to go to the board. You know we had a board of directors. I'm not the majority owner at the time. Todd was between Todd and myself and all the other guys in the board. It was thirty twenty twenty ten you know I, there was no ownership that commanding decision. It would have had to be committee, so there was like a week long <laughs> trial. It was terrible. Uh, everyone was being interviewed by the board. And finally, uh, we had a uh, a private meeting and the, the board said, yeah, it's time to let Todd go, Dave. Um, we'd like to offer you the president's position. And that was in 2005. Um, I uh, took the CEO position. Then... What changed everything culture that's where uh Mr. Kabicki was pretty much old school uh, hard day's work, hard days' pay, no incentives, no real um no real culture it was it was you know hard fist management uh he provided opportunity for people that worked hard, absolutely, but the culture you know the people that just came in and worked hard every day you know, there was no real recognition. There was no major perks. Um, no employee of the month, none of those things Like that,
2: uh, getting paid is thank you enough. Yes, sort of thing. exactly. Okay. Uh,
1: Cause Bruce champion used to fight all the time for incentives and bonuses and rewards. And no, you, you get, we do that at merit time. That's when we do it. Okay. So, um, I decided that, you know really work on the culture of the business because uh without the people um, you don't have a business and i started this work of champion program which was uh somewhat named after Bruce champion and, and also the the whole culture part of of the business and uh we we put together a reward program we put together incentive programs recognition non-stop celebrate every win we'd have parties uh regularly an early dismissal on Friday paid if we'd hit hit all of our goals and hit home runs and it became you know just a big happy family we were um, we were we were just uh having a great time uh for as long as I was there um and then we had some changes uh the next chapter here, but in two thousand eight, I was approached uh by a fellow from I'm sorry 2006 the year after I became president um he wanted and I ended up taking a loan out from the banks and borrow, ended up buying majority finally
2: between 2005 and 2006 <laughs> or yeah,
1: I'm sorry it is eight, 2008 yeah 2000, okay. 2008 uh so it took me 3 years to buy out the other minority shareholders um and then we had our own group of my minority shareholders um underneath me but it was it was pretty more of a uh i guess i'd call it not a phantom stock but kind of a you know ownership pride yeah you know very diluted but it meant something to everybody um but i ended up uh being majority owner in 2008 and same arrangement, basically, that Hank had. Uh, but it was all, it was it, it was diluted between like 15 inside people. Uh, so I get approached by this guy from France out of nowhere. Uh, knocked on the door and said, hey, you know, I'd like to buy you. So sorry, I just bought it. It's not for sale. Yeah. And he owned a company in France that built industrial ovens. Told me all about himself. We hit it off pretty well. And I said, what about a joint venture? I can sell some of your products over here in the States. You can sell some of my products over there in in France. And we shook hands on it, wrote up a contract, and he ended up on uh, my board of directors, and I ended up on his board of directors. So we did very well. We were growing. The only, the only heartache and... Uh, tough time we went through is when Hank passed away uh right about the same time that digital uh processing came in for the film industry and we lost probably 9 million dollars of revenue the same year Hank died so I had to replace that and that's when we got into the composites and we got into some of the other and this is right about the time of Google and all these you know new yeah new things coming out to get your name out there so we invested heavily in that
2: so that was the the oven you you had patented or the process you had patented was now no sort of obsolete yeah the need for it okay
1: yeah it went away about the same time hank you know passed so we had to reinvent ourselves so we focused on culture we focused on new products we focused on investing in the search engine optimization thing that i knew nothing about but was told a lot about and we had a guy on our board of directors that had done a lot of that stuff, so helped us get our feet in there.
2: Man, nine million dollar revenue hit your first year as the majority yeah, owner. Yeah. Welcome. Drop from twenty one <laughs> million to thirteen
1: like yeah. that, you know. So it's easy to be an owner, see? Oh uh, so and much. I now I'm in debt, you know, two, three million bucks. Um and basically, if it wasn't for the fact that we owned all the real estate, I wouldn't have gotten those loans. Um and, uh, you know, that created a lot of nervousness at home with the family because we, we were doing very well as VP of operations. I, my house almost paid off, and now I'm going in and putting my life on the line. And then, you know, print plate goes away. <laughs> yeah. Just, and buying property, buying stock out. Um, but we got through it. We, we went, uh, you know... From you know that thirteen million we grew it back up to twenty one million and within three, four, three, three years and then this French guy comes around and wants to buy it I said, no we're doing we you know we're gonna do this so from from eight to twelve we killed it uh, we grew it to almost uh now twenty six million dollars uh no, two thousand twelve when I sold it we were yeah. Twenties twenty eight million or something like that. Twenties. But there was the downturn in oh in eight that almost took us uh to our knees in oh nine. Yeah.
2: A lot of took so you and a lot of others. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And uh that's So you
2: bought this company at the exact right time. Nine million dollars goes away because of digitization and yeah, then the yeah, Great Recession yeah. comes along.
1: But what was really cool was when you should you have know, bought it just after that. I, I should have, right. <laughs> I should have, but we had a record year in sales, um you know right before that recession we took it from in o six to o eight uh so you know Hank, the, the print plate went away in o three ah, when okay. Hank died, okay, so you know, from six to uh or two thousand five, I think it was when we were able to start a ramp up to two thousand and eight, we had a record year, we went to twenty some million, and then o nine we were half the revenue. <laughs> And that's when I decided I don't want to do this forever. And in 2012, I, I decided to sell it to the French guy. And whole thing. Yeah, whole thing. And
2: so your JV partner is now the owner.
1: Yeah. And um, basically, I just got rid of all that debt and flipped, you know, did a big swing into equity. But he, he kept me on as CEO and he said, you know what? <laughs> I've I've witnessed you live through the recession. I've witnessed you in your leadership style. And he said, and the growth of this business, just keep doing what you're doing. I will not, I don't want anything to do with it. Just send me financials.
2: So you crawled yourself, you crawled your way back out of the great recession. You're doing doing well. What was it that, and maybe it was just the thought of that happening again, but what you, what was it that finally tripped the trigger where you were like, was it him continuing to ask? Was it you? Because I went through a similar process, so I'm curious what your mindset or you know your thought process was where you finally said, "Okay." Uh,
1: so when I when the recession hit, in it started in '08, you know, ended in 09. Like you said, it was a long, great, painful recession. I went through divorce in 08 and 09, right in that area, because. You know, now I went went in debt, and the wife was not really happy about all of that. And uh,
2: well, like you said, you were almost had your house paid yeah. off. You were like, this yeah. is, "I got the greatest thing now, right? Why yeah. would I?" Yeah, okay. And
1: you know, there's all there's a lot of other backstory to why you know divorces happen, but everything went collapsed at the same time. So now I not only have millions of debt to the bank, I. I mean, if there's ever a good time to get in a divorce, it's at the downturn. But it still was expensive, (laughs) so I, I I owed. Good timing there. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I I still owed her a lot of money. I owed the bank a lot of money, And, and even though we were, you know, climbing out of it and doing well, it, it seemed as though I was never going to be out from under this rock. And when we got to, you know. Record profit and record heights in sales in 12, I said, I think now's the time. And he would continually ask as well. Okay. Uh, and finally, one day on a plane ride home from France, um, I looked at him and I said, it's time. He's like, okay, let's do it. So uh, 12 to 2015, we grew it to 30, $32 million in revenue. And record EBITDA. And he got in trouble over in France with one of his companies. They were having a hard time. And he called me one day and he said, I got to sell. And I said, okay, yeah, you got to do what you got to do. The whole thing. The whole thing. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't long. Uh, we get approached by private equity.
2: Did you like being the CEO of, for another owner? Was yeah. Okay?
1: For him, it was incredible. Yeah. Uh, it was like I still owned it. You know, it was uh, just a a great uh, relationship. We were friends. I'd go to France regularly and, you know, get to do a lot of cool things with him. And he'd come over here and we'd we'd tour the U.S. And we had a friendship. Uh, We trusted each other. And, wow, we did well. So um, hands off. You know, we didn't have one-on-ones. It was, you know. Maybe once a monthly call, and you know, kick the tires and see how things are going. If I needed anything, but it was it was great.
2: Did you ever regret selling during that period? or no.
1: since? Does he? You. Um, well, when I've seen what it's grown to, and what you know, now that I've I've gone through the the private equity world, and you know, seeing the multiples and the you know the potential, it probably could have got a lot more if I would have hung on a little longer. But I don't yeah. have any regrets. That's that's okay. life. So. The last chapter?
2: Yeah, let's do the last chapter. So, 3 <laughs> years with your French partner, he has to sell the business and he gets a process going, I guess, or something.
1: Right. To, so, uh he puts it on the market basically and private equity uh group approached him. This private equity group owns our competitor, one of our top competitors, Thermal Process Solu- uh, Solutions, TPS, out of uh, White Deer, Pennsylvania. This private equity group just bought them from SPX, publicly held company. They carved them out. They were about the same size and revenue as we were, um, served some of the same markets, but also some other markets that we were not into. They so a
2: different product lineup, or maybe some the same and other different?
1: Right. Uh, they competed with us in the um, industrial heat treating uh, arena, mid-temperature, you know, 500 to 800 to 1,000 degree ovens. But they also did a lot of clean room, uh, laboratory equipment, uh, environmental testing ovens, hmm. um, Uh, high-temperature furnaces, melting furnaces. So, you know, buying us kind of gave them uh, more of a horizontal platform and more diversified offering. Uh,
2: Is a melting furnace like something you'd see in a foundry? Yes. Okay. Yeah.
1: So I'm like, okay, we're being bought by a competitor. They ended up being the high bidder. There was a process, of course, you know— I'm doing management presentations to, you know, probably the the people that are going to fire me um, and others, you know. And the the process goes through. Um, I get interviewed by private equity. They said, no, we're going to keep you on. Uh, We're going to have the president of TPS manage uh, Pennsylvania. You can continue to manage this. And I said, okay. And after the deal gets done, they walk in my door and I thought, okay, this is it. <laughs> you know, they said uh, we're gonna terminate our CEO and we want to make you CEO of all Thermal Product Solutions, hmm. but you need to move to Pennsylvania. Uh, and you know, and they didn't mean physically relocate, but I got an apartment. Uh, they were restructuring the whole business and this company had gone through so many different management um you know they were kind of the you know the ugly kid in the corner of SPX and, and it was it was not, not and everybody pretty, knew it everybody knew it yeah so so you know private equity came in to clean that up and they needed to just overhaul it so i went in uh got an apartment and i'd fly in every monday Fly out every Friday or Saturday, and I had to basically clean house. You know, I don't know if anyone's ever watched uh, Office Space uh, movie, but it, it was yeah. pretty much doing interviews like that. What do you do here? <laughs> you we know, got this red stapler over here. All leaning stuff.
2: over the, the top of the cubicle. Yeah. So yeah. yeah,
1: and it's it's funny. It's what's really unique. I think in that movie, there's the TPS report. Yeah, the TPS <laughs> yeah, report. Yeah, it's, it's the same company. <laughs> <laughs> same story. So it was, you know, it was tough. I, I was away from home a lot. I was flying for three years that went on and three
2: years. So, so you go from being, you know, an owner, entrepreneur running Wisconsin oven ultimately mm-hmm. to being an executive now in a bigger company who's on the road every week. Yeah. The whole week. Yeah. the whole That's week. a big change.
1: Yeah, because uh, in that three-year period, we also purchased another company in California. Uh, so I, after I got things under control in Pennsylvania, we bought that company, and now I'm traveling kind of one week in Pennsylvania, one week in mm. California. We also own a, a company in Michigan. So we had four different locations under this brand TPS with several different brands underneath it. Uh, so yeah now um it's gone uh yeah, and so we've started to dilute our management and leadership at Wisconsin Oven too because I'm gone the guy that's you know, always there and the cheer the, the cheerleader and, yeah and uh some of my management team got dispersed also to the other facilities so we had to move our middle management up and and uh you know they they uh Got opportunities and, um, but it kind of kinked the whole culture thing, you know? They felt robbed, and there's this us and them thing yeah, all the time yeah, yeah. that you're fighting. So they
2: began to feel like, um, yeah. the TPS felt under SPX, maybe. Yes,
1: exactly. Ah, yeah. Well, who, you know, now they're getting all the love, and it was tough. I mean, uh, but, you know, I, I worked hard at keeping it together, uh, but there was de- it was definitely a whole different animal, for sure. It would go from 150 employees to 500, you know, doing 30 million in revenue to 100.
2: how did you manage that? What? How did?
1: Uh, well, we it was under managed. We you couldn't um, you couldn't hire management fast enough to get them in place and adequately add to your bottom line. Uh, to be honest with you, it was. Me continuing to work um, endless hours and my management team being wor- pulled in every different direction.
2: And no more time and a half.
1: Yeah, no more 50% <laughs> raise for <of> the overtime. <laughs> it's a 50% cut. <laughs> <clears throat> hmm.
2: Yeah, that flipped your business model. Right. <laughs> said. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> it's
1: amazing how that goes. <laughs> So uh, you know we we we've, we've you know built a good business there at TPS, um, the, you know private equity usually runs a three four year course depending if it's strategic or you know, but this was this was the plan, and uh, we went to market again, um, started in eighteen, and we almost had a deal, um, and it. Fell through, I think it was about May of, of this year. And I was just like, oh, you know, we worked a whole year. These things take a long time, all the due diligence, all the flights all over the country, meeting, you know, eight different managers. Telling the story telling over story, and over, over and over again. Yeah. yeah. Um and to me it was it was uh it was just exhausting. I got to the point where and I had I had actually a year ago with all this travel, it was just physically and mentally it was it was beating me up. And I had said I had mentioned to private equity that I really think that I was getting close to retiring. And I'm like, no, 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 one more year, we're gonna put this up for market, you know. And uh now that it fell through we had to have a serious conversation about you know, what, what I wanted and what was right for you know, the next phase and decided retirement was the best. And I retired uh, in June of this year. That's how it happened.
2: And you, okay. So I'm curious working in this role that you never could have imagined. I, I don't think working as a CEO for a private equity owned company with plants, your own, your own plant, plant in Pennsylvania, plant in, California plant, Michigan, five hundred employees. Um, did you ever? Did you ever feel like because not going to college, you just you know your work was always enough to get you where you wanted to be, or even past where you wanted to be, and now you're in this big role. Did you ever feel like your work wasn't enough like you because I imagine you're surrounded by a bunch of people right, who I do have some type of degree that they, yeah. and I'm just curious how you were feeling through that?
1: uh yeah, I will tell you in earlier in my career as an executive, uh there were times where I felt intimidated. Because I'm I'm surrounded with guys with masters and you know you know all this education, uh, but I learned through you know my tenure as a, as an executive, most of the time, the book smarts isn't what's gonna get you through life and business. It's common sense. It, it's it's the the soft skills. Um, yeah, I learned how to. I learned how to read a balance sheet. I understand financials. I did that the hard way, um, and I think that's good because I'm I'm a little more detailed about it now. I I really had to work hard to learn that. I you know I had to ask questions. I had good people underneath me. I had great CEOs right. or CFOs working for me, and um, I felt more accomplished because I did it the hard way, and. You know I know so many people that have gone to school that racked up all this college debt, and they've gone a different direction from all the training they've gotten in school and I trained the way I wanted to train, I knew where I wanted to go, and I was forward in the in the business that I grew up in and when I got here, I look back and say I would never have done it any different way.
2: Where do you think? your leadership and culture-building uh, aptitude or skill set came from? Because as you mentioned, your, your your dad probably didn't have a ton of that because of what you, you, yeah, know, you his said, upbringing. his childhood and everything.
3: Yeah,
1: uh, I, I To this day, I attribute it to uh, Bruce Champion, my mentor. He was a great leader. He he had a way of bringing the best out of people. And, uh, you know, here's a guy that he was uh, VP of operations. Uh, he, he was he was a public accountant before he came uh, to Wisconsin Oven, but he, he was such a real guy. He'd go down and he'd talk to everybody, get to know your kids' names, get to know your wife your 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 hobbies, you know what do you do when you're not working? what are your passions everyone it wasn't just me, it was people that really had an interest in the company. he put an interest into them. Yeah. in fact, I took that to the next level, you know when we had i he made me understand how important it is to um, build relationships and and friends. And, you know, and understand where the line is. But still, being an employer, employee, isn't just about Hank's way, which was good days work, good days pay. Yeah. You know, uh, it was a little bit more than that. And I would go, when I'd fly out to uh, Pennsylvania, I had everyone's picture taken, and I'd have it, their name and their position, and I'd have a Rolodex on the plane with me, and I'd memorize it. On my way to Pennsylvania, Susan, see the photo. She works in uh electrical department. Bill, Joe, Bob, Tom. And I. you know, within a you know, few weeks, I knew names and people would be like, Wow, you remembered my name? And hey, Joe, what's your what's your kids' names? What do you got going on? How many kids do you got? What are their names? Make little notes. Christmas parties, I would have the receptionist print off all the names, all the wife's names, and and kids' names if I could. Rem- I couldn't remember them all, obviously, when you're when you're cramming for that exam yeah. uh, the week before Christmas. But those things make a difference. And then I be- I became really interested. You know, once I g- you'd have those conversations, and then it'd be like, "Hey, how's your son doing in soccer?" You said he was doing really well, and it people just light up they're like wow he really cares and i did
2: does it surprise you when you run into people who don't have that
1: yes and um there are i mean i know some now in business that it's just um it's just black and white there's there's really it's just about getting a result your your name your number and nothing else
2: were they i found um I find that some people pretend, right? So they'll like ask an engaging question. And then while you're answering it, <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're checking their, their email. Yeah, right. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, it's, yeah. Like, it's like crazy. Like, yeah. Let me, let me show you how how unimportant you really are to me. It's going to sound like I'm going to ask you an engaging question right now. And then just watch me as you respond. <laughs> see how you feel. Let me know yeah. how you feel about that.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's crazy. Been a, it's been a crazy uh ride um you know without i mean i have a wonderful supportive wife my wife andrea is, you know put up with me flying all over the place we we have i have two stepchildren ava and chloe are 14 and 17 she's home with them trying to you know you know put keep all the pieces together while i'm gone flying all over the place um lots of stress you know um but so you need to have a support system uh no matter what when you're out there on your own uh and i i I give her all the credit in the world for being you know they always there's that old saying behind every successful man stands a woman sometimes (laughs) well that's my case right now uh she's been amazing for me
2: and what about your mom and dad
1: so now my dad and i are best buds um we we buried the hatchet, you know, long after, you know, when I started Wisconsin oven. Um, my mom's, uh, happily married. She's in her third marriage. She's happily married. Um, in fact, her birthday is Halloween. I just had a hmm. birthday, uh, dinner with her. We all get along great. Um, my mom and dad talk. Um, it's great. You know, we, we have some memories and some good ones, some bad ones, but, uh, Life goes on.
2: Do you th- do you ever think would things have turned out differently for you if you hadn't gotten in that fight and hadn't left the house?
1: I guess I never really looked back and, and did that. Okay. Uh, 'cause I've always You don't
2: seem like a guy that looks back. It's always about yeah, moving forward.
1: Yeah. In fact I've always told my employees that, you know, we have falling out, they have issues, big mistakes, oh you're gonna kill me. I said, Look, you know, I go through life looking through the windshield. I never look through the rear view mirror. It, it it's not going to do any good and that's why the windshield's bigger than the rear view mirror. And you know, just don't be the speed bump in front of me three times because then we're going to have a problem. <laughs> but we'll get over it right now, <laughs> you know. So uh yeah, I I'd never really look back at what you know would have happened if I would have done this or that. I mean, yeah, we all make mistakes and I think sometimes those mistakes make make you a better person. Yeah. Um, I, I know that for a fact. So,
2: What's unique about you?
1: What's unique about me? I think, uh, well, I think, you know, just where I am today and who I am today, I've always done it the unconventional way. I, uh, I always live by the model, work hard, play hard. I like to have fun. I'm not, people will tell you, um, wow, you know he's this rich guy this ceo president but he'll he'll hang out with anybody and he'll go play golf with a guy from high school that's uh you know a blue collar worker or a friend of his or i meet somebody somewhere i don't care who you are i don't care what your background is if i can add value to your life and we can have a relationship if I can help you in any way, um, we I, yeah, I don't discriminate whatsoever. I, I mean, I think life is full of so many wonderful people, and uh, I think anyone you talk to will be uh, under, you know, their description of me would be, I'm pretty down to earth. Um, and that's the way I've always lived because I came from, you know, yeah. where, where I was, so. What's
2: the one thing that you want to accomplish the rest of your life?
1: Well, I one of the things I wanted to accomplish, I did, which was write a book, um, building a championship culture. The next thing I want to accomplish is kind of the sequel to that, you know, because when I wrote that book, uh, it was prior to the acquisition, and I learned a little bit more about. Business at a whole different level, and going from private ownership to private equity, um, and all of the intricacies that happen when you know you're in that world. So I want to write another book because um, the other book was rushed. At the end of it, I had to just get it done before uh, I went on to the TPS chapter. Uh, outside of that, um, yeah, I'm 53. I want to have fun and do one more adventure. Hmm. I don't know what it is yet, but I want it to be the most fun I've ever had. I don't want to be doing anything that is full of stress and full of travel. I don't want, I'll travel if it's fun. I'll do whatever, but I want it to really be enriching and not stressful. And, uh, and help other people discover and be able to find some opportunities like I had. Help people succeed that I had the same opportunity because of people like Bruce Champion.
2: Mm. I like it. I think it's gonna happen.
1: I know it's gonna happen. The way you say it, yeah. Yeah, I I know you know it's gonna happen.
2: So before I let you go, uh, you had a chance to check out my uh sponsors. Actually, drinking in here. Water. Mm-hmm. Hello Water. I think you have the mixed berry there. Mm-hmm. What do you think?
1: I love it. This is uh I've never really done the flavored water. And now I think I'm going to continue to do the flavored water. This is really a It's a good taste to it.
2: All right, super. Another mm-hmm. endorsement for mm. Hello Water. Thank you Tom for being my sponsor and Dave, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been really great getting to know you since we sort of ran into each other a few weeks ago. You're and welcome. I am—I mean, your your story is is very impressive. But what's impressed me the most about it, and I think there's a good lesson in this for everybody, and for me, is you said yes whenever somebody said, "Can you do more?" And I feel like that's the most powerful world word in the world is yes and when you're saying yes because you want to do do more not you're saying yes because you think if I do this then I'll sort of position myself to be here and you know you get all these other sort of things going on that go through a lot of people's heads like they're always positioning themselves instead of just saying yeah I'll do it and I'll work my ass off and that, who knows where that'll lead, but it, it, it very well may, may lead to somebody asking me to do something else to which I will say yes and then yeah. on and on. So your story is very compelling um, to me, at least for that reason, and and a lot of others as well. So thanks for thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Oh, you're welcome. It was a pleasure.
2: Thanks for listening to this episode of the How Did Happen podcast, where we believe that success doesn't happen unless you make it happen. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. And while you're there, please rate it and leave a comment as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the show, ideas for future guests, or whatever you'd like to share. And of course, you can always find me at MikeMalatesta.com. See you next time. Thanks again for listening to the how It Happen podcast.